This episode is sponsored by Milk and Honey. Milk and Honey began as a luxury day spa in Austin, Texas, and has since grown to include eight locations across Texas and Los Angeles, California, as well as a line of bath, body, and skincare born from the spa. Milk and Honey sources and uses the safest possible ingredients in both their spa treatments and product lines, which means both choosing organic and making thoughtful, informed choices on safe ingredients. I recently went to their Brentwood location to treat myself to a spa day. In addition to having a wonderful and deeply therapeutic massage, I really appreciated how peaceful and relaxing the spa environment is. The lounge that is available for guests pre and post treatments felt like a little sanctuary and retreat away from the outside hustle and bustle of LA. We are so excited to now be able to offer our listeners a discount at all milk and honey spas, including both LA locations in Culver city and Brentwood. We are even more excited to partner with them to offer a spa package called the courageous wellness retreat, a 60 minute milk and honey signature massage, which is a Swedish massage tailored to your needs focusing on relaxation and stress relief combined with body brushing an exfoliating and detoxifying treatment that uses a natural bristle brush that you get to take home to stimulate your lymph and circulation while also reviving dull skin. And for all our listeners in any location, their online boutique offers products from the milk and honey line and from other top brands, including Osea Malibu, super goop, Virtue, Moon Juice, Kula Sun Care, and more. Courageous Wellness listeners can enjoy 20% off your next order at milkandhoney.com and 20% off your first spa service at any Milk and Honey location with code CW podcast. Visit milkandhoneyspa.com to find a location near you. And if you want to try the Courageous Wellness Spa package at a special discounted rate, use the code Courageous Wellness Retreat to redeem. This is not able to be combined with any other discount or promotion. And you can find all this information in our show notes. Welcome to Courageous Wellness. My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French, and this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Allie experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s, and Erica went through a self-love journey, we created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Courageous Wellness and Happy New Year. We are so excited to kick off the year with this great episode with Maya Feller. And before we get into it, of course, we always share our weekly updates and it's the new year. So we thought we'd have a little conversation on resolutions. I know I'm I'm still not drinking, but Allie, I think you're doing a dry January and you're mm-hmm prepping with some fun mocktails. So just a fun New Year's update. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for anyone who is doing a dry January, I just want to remind everyone that we had a great episode last week with Dr. Brooke, who is a sober nutrition expert, and we had a great sober curious conversation. So after you listen to this episode, check that one out because it's a good one too. But Mm -hmm. how are you feeling, Allie? Do you have any New Year's resolutions? How are you feeling about dry January? Tell us all the things. I'm good. I don't do resolutions. Um, but I, I do try to like set intentions for the new year or just, you know, it's sort of a time like the quiet, the winter is a time of year. I think it gets a little, well, I guess for some people it gets a little crazy, but there's also more of a stillness in it too. So, um, I just try to take the opportunity to set some intentions for what I, you know, what I want to um, prioritize in my life or, um, continue to work towards. So I definitely don't look at it as like, I wasn't doing something here and now I'm doing something here, but just like ways in which I want to create progress, um, or yeah. things of value in my, in my life. Um, yeah, I do and, the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm much more about, it's like a reflection period and an intention period. And I usually try to pick like a word. I haven't picked my word yet. I think last year's word was joy, but kind of a word or feeling I want to try to experience throughout the new year of 2023. So that's kind of how I approach it as well. I like that. We have a good friend that does that too. I feel like she always like texts around and is like, what's your word? So she makes me think about a word, which is great. Um, and yeah. And you mentioned, uh, dry January. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not like a big drinker in general, but I, I do enjoy a cocktail now and again. Um, but one of the things that I, I also really enjoy like not drinking too, taking periods of time off. Like I really do. And, um, but one of the things that I've just really loved over this last year plus, but like, I'm, I'm getting more into it for myself are some of the, um, non-alcoholic, alcoholic alternative, um, mocktail type things. Like I love a bitter drink. I love, um, typically like a Negroni or, um, a spritz or something like that with, you know, some Italian bitters. So I have found, I don't know how to pronounce this. If it's Gia, maybe it's Gia. Um, they have a really yummy spritz and the ingredients are, I, I, I'm like, I'm really happy with the ingredients, um, you know, from a nutrition perspective, but also like it tastes really good. In my opinion, it kind of hits that spot, um, but there's no alcohol in it. And um, one that I know you and I are going to try soon. I think it's, I don't know why I can't pronounce any of these brand names, but Liar, <laughs> L-Y-R-E, like the mm. instrument. Um, yeah. And uh, just ordered some, you know, Italian, it's called like the Italian spritz or something like that from them where you can make 
sort of a non-alcoholic Aperol spritz type drink. So I'm really excited to try them. And they have a lot of like botanicals and kind of cool ingredients too. Yeah. You influenced me. I looked at their website and it's actually, if you are sober curious or interested in, you know, changing your relationship with alcohol, doing a dry January. I mean, the options now are so beautiful. Like I was like perusing their website and they have kits to make every drink you'd want non-alcoholic and the bottles are so beautiful. You could even put them on a non-alcoholic bar cart, like the creativity. And for anybody who is newer to our podcast or hasn't listened, I, I took the year off last year from drinking and I tried drinking for a couple months after that year and it just isn't serving me. So I'm super off the booze, but um, (laughs) it's fun. Like the ritual of a nice drink is, is nice. And I know a lot of people do dry January. So, and especially like, you know, this is an episode about nutrition and we know that joy is a nutrient and things that we love are important. And that can include if we don't have any addiction issues, you know, a glass of wine or a nice cocktail, but you know, there's great ways to enjoy mocktails too, that, you know, definitely don't have any negative impacts on our health, which I think is why the sober curious movement is so popular because I think the realities of alcohol are impacting a lot of us. And so, you know, it's just a good supplement to a great nutrition episode with Maya. Yeah, with Maya. And I'm so excited to get into into today's episode. Um, And you know, if you're a longtime listener, you know that uh, Milk and Honey is one of our sponsors. We also are just great for fans of the brand. And um, at any of their spas across the country, you can use the code CWPODCAST for 20% off as a new customer. You can also use the um, code CWPODCAST for their online boutique and uh, their retail items in their spas as well. There are spas in Los Angeles, Texas, around Texas, um, Chicago, Miami now. So check out milkandhoney.com or milkandhoneyspa.com. Yeah. And again, use code CWPODCAST get that 20% off. And their online store has such great things like products from Osea Malibu, Moon Juice, Kula Sun Care, and the milk and honey products are hyper clean, female founded, female funded. I'm devoted to their aluminum free deodorant among many other products. I love, I just tried their exfol. I've always loved their, uh, their regular gel cleanser, but I got the exfoliating one and it's such a nice, um, it's a nice little exfoliator. So yeah. Um, I, I got a it. facial recently at their uh, Culver City location, and it was awesome. Um, yeah, we yeah so we're them. big fans. <laughs> so, and we love and we're so happy that they sponsor the show. So check them out. So uh, as we mentioned, we have a great conversation with Maya today. So shall we get into it? Yes, let's do it. On today's episode, we welcome Maya Feller, a Brooklyn-based registered dietitian nutritionist who is also a nationally recognized nutrition expert. In her practice, she provides medical nutrition therapy for the management of and risk reduction of non-communicable diseases. Maya received her Master's of Science in Clinical Nutrition at New York University, where she also is adjunct faculty. Whether addressing the nation or working one-on-one and with groups, Maya believes in providing nutrition education from an anti-bias, patient-centered, culturally sensitive approach. Maya is dedicated to promoting nutrition education that helps the public to make informed food choices that support health and longevity. 
Maya shares her approachable real food-based solutions to millions of people through regular speaking engagements, writing in local and national publications via her social media, and as a featured nutrition expert on Good Morning America, uh, and many more. She is the author of the Southern Comfort Food Diabetes Cookbook, Over 100 Recipes for a Healthy Life, and today we discuss her new book, Eating from Our Roots, 80-plus Healthy Home-Cooked Favorites from Cultures Around the World, which is available through Goop Press everywhere this January 24th. We appreciate Maya sharing her expertise, valued every bit of this conversation with her, and are so happy to present it as our first episode of this new year. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Before we get to today's episode, we want to tell you a little bit about the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. Erica and I are both certified integrative health coaches and now offer health coaching through the Courageous Wellness Collective. We continued our education and received certification through the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. IIN has taken the lead in the health coaching industry from its inception and provides a comprehensive curriculum that combines nutrition, coaching, and business. We loved the program and have so many listeners ask us about continuing education for nutrition, health coaching programs, or even just enrolling in higher education to learn more about food and nutrition for themselves. So we are very excited to be able to offer a discount to Courageous Wellness listeners to study at IIN. The program is completely accessible virtually with lectures led by health, wellness, and medical industry experts. To receive up to $2,000 off your tuition, you can use our names, Allie French or Erica Stein at the time of enrollment to receive the tuition discount. We have also included a link in the show notes that will take you directly to IIN to learn more about their wonderful programs. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Maya. We are very excited to have this conversation with you and we are huge fans, discuss your book, discuss so much. But before we get into all of that, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your journey into the wellness space? Yeah, well, um, first, thank you both for having me. Um, and I'm thrilled to get to talk to your audience. So interesting, like when I think back to my journey to becoming a registered dietitian, um, like I wish I could say like, you know, it was always my dream, but actually I kind of happened upon it through running and it's really funny. So I always tell people, you know, I did my undergrad in experimental theater and so people are like, oh, that's interesting. It's avant-garde theater. So it's like basically theater of the absurd. Um, and I really thought that I was just going to be like a performance artist and, you know, do, I don't know, whatever, uh, really creative things. Uh, and then I realized that I wasn't going to be a performance artist and I had to figure out something else. And so I had this very basic job that I loved and it was super satisfying and I was volunteering a ton at the time and then decided with my running partner that we would train for the Boston Marathon because I had I was like satisfied at work and had time. And the joke is that we were amazing runners, but we were terrible at nourishing ourselves. She ended up in the hospital twice, once with hyponatremia and once with hypernatremia. And then I was constantly hungry. I was a vegetarian at the time. And I was like, this is, I was like, we don't know what we're doing. This is, this is a disaster. 
Um, and so I said, okay, I'm going to Google nutrition for runners. And as I was Google searching, I realized that this is something that people study. And so my love for running and then trying to run seriously actually catapulted me into wellness and coming from like a family of major academics, uh, it was kind of non-negotiable. Like there was no certificate program in my future. It was like, you're going back to school. <laughs> and so I actually went back to school to become a dietitian. Um, and it was when I was in school and exposed to the various parts of like the science of nutrition that I realized that I wanted to work with communities that had been marginalized and that I wanted to take my expertise and probably some of my like avant-garde, you know, quirky, fun self um, into these spaces that hadn't really seen Black dietitians, right? Um, and to be like respectful and work from a lens of cultural humility. So, you know, I joke that, like I said in the beginning, right, it wasn't what I was set out to do, but it became very clear that it's actually my mission and passion. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's so funny. I was laughing when you talked about your undergrad in experimental theater, because I too come from oh. a theater background and did my undergrad in, in theater. That's um, amazing. I, now I have to ask what- Where did you go? I <laughs> I I went to Vassar um, okay. and they actually call their theater program there the experimental theater. So mm -hmm. I was like, did we both go? Um, oh. Obviously, there's many different uh, experimental theater programs out there. Um, yeah. So but my background uh, professionally is in musical theater, believe it or not. Amazing. We definitely would have been friends in a previous life because, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I wasn't singing show tunes, I was doing Butoh performance art. There we go. That's awesome. <laughs> and now, now both in the food space in different ways. So yes, that I, I appreciate the evolution in that space. Um, one thing that you share about, especially in the dietetics space is, um, having this sort of cultural sensitivity to food, uh, which I think is becoming like people are becoming more conscientious about that, at least in the food space and nutrition space, but it's still shockingly um, not the forefront of a lot of uh, approaches to nutrition, both from the medical perspective with, you know, dietitians um, and, the for sure the wellness space Erica and I you know even in our own evolution and exploration about that these are conversations that are starting to come up more and more which I think is important and to build um just to build an awareness about it um and how health um in a lot of ways can has become commodified and also um I think sometimes there's this, this like that it, it can needs to look a certain way. And in fact, we know that's not true. Yeah. Um, so I would love to just as before we kind of go into the more specifics of your work, if you would just share with our audience, the, the general approach and lens that you look, um, you kind of look at the world of dietetics and nutrition through, if you could share a little bit about that too. Yeah, definitely. So that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's funny, I was on a panel recently 
And one of the panelists said something that I thought was so fantastic. She said, and it was a question similar to this, right? And she said, I'm going to give you an answer, but know that my answer does not do actually justice to the theme or topic. And I was like, I'm going to put that in my memory bank because these are huge conversations. And just as you noted, Ali, like it's evolving, right? So when we're thinking about patient-centered care, when we're thinking about centering social determinants of health, so those, you know, variables that people need to express optimal health. So, you know, safe and secure, affordable housing, you know, safe education spaces that are respectful, high quality, you know, medical care that is also affordable, but also from a lens of cultural humility, you know, access to safe, affordable, nutritious food, some space and time to actually engage in fun and not be working all the time or have four jobs. And so, I feel like when we start to have these conversations about really looking at social determinants of health in relation to nutrition and access, then it's like it kind of um, mushrooms into a, oh, now what we're really talking about is systemic change. Um, and what we're really talking about is actually moving away from saying, listen, you have diabetes, you can't do this, you're not meant to do that, to let's talk about where you are in your life, what you have access to, what you know about the condition that you've been diagnosed with, um, and let's talk about your culture, right? And the thing that I always like to say about culture that we have to rem remember is that culture is not unique to racial and ethnic minorities, right? Everybody has culture. Culture are the social norms that any group agrees to follow, right? And so when we start to infuse the discussion of culture into the nutrition space, then we realize that it truly does influence how people interact with food, how they think about food, what their access is to food. It shapes their likes and dislikes. Um, and so I think that when I'm working with patients and when the dietitians on my team are working with patients, we really, really try our best to say, okay, every patient is the expert in their lived experience, right? And we know the science. And the question is, how can we have a meet in the middle or get to a place of understanding that supports whatever health or nutrition related goal that patient wants to meet. And that's kind of, you know what I mean? How we frame and think about our counseling sessions and our language around nutrition. Uh, yeah, it's so, and I think you know, we're having this conversation and this episode is coming out in January, which is such a time where people are so hyper-focused on food and, um, it's a podcast. So air quotes, healthy eating, right. Cleaning yeah. up our diets. Yes. Um, but a lot of times when we talk about healthy eating, there's this gap between, well, that must erase, um, an entire culture of foods sometimes, right. Or what appears to be healthy or what I think mainstream wellness and media talk about, it does erase a lot of, um, cultural foods, emotional foods, exactly what you're talking about. This bridge of access to well 
what do people even have access to have? The emotions behind our food choices are so loaded, which is why we know, um, I mean, we live in a, a state where people are suffering from a lot of chronic health issues. Um, and it can just feel so far away, right? I'm sure even some people listening to this conversation are hoping to listen and get some of those, like, and, and I'm sure we're going to go into it. We're going to talk about your book. We're going to talk about nutritious food choices, but it's just interesting. A lot of times historically, as especially a lot of women will go into the month of January with these ideas about healthful eating. And I think statistically, we know that by February, definitely by March, it's all fallen off. And so I think this, this bridge and this conversation and everything you just mentioned and really embracing cultural foods and flavors and tastes and where people are at, that's kind of this important part of, I think, long-term health, long-term quote changes, if that's what people are looking to make. And, um, I think what you're doing and that part of your conversation is really crucial to, anything long-term because if we just try to live in this space of what healthy looks like, that's so far from where we're at or so far from our choice, our, our access or our flavor choices and preferences, it's not sustainable. And it just sets ourselves up, I think, to be even more like just unhappy, truthfully. <laughs> yeah. I completely agree. You know, it's funny. Um, one of the things that I feel like I had to unlearn when I came out of school was like this definition of what is, I'm going to use your guys' um, air quotes, right? Quote, unquote, healthy. And what is, quote, unquote, unhealthy. And I had to completely shift what I had been taught because we were taught in school, my plate. And I have to be clear, right? I'm not saying that my plate is not a good tool. What I'm saying is that my plate is not exactly how everyone eats. If half your plate is a non-starchy vegetable, a quarter of your plate is protein, and then a quarter of your plate is starch, yes, of course, tons of science, tons of evidence that that's like a pattern of eating, you know, when we engage in that the majority of time, that reduces our risk for diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. But where does borscht, for example, fit into my plate? Or what if someone wants to have spätzle and schnitzel on the side with sauerkraut? How does that fit into my plate? Or if someone wants to have rice and tofu and bok choy with, you know, soy sauce? How does that fit into my plate? You know, like, so we can literally go around the globe and then we begin to realize that almost every culture other than quote unquote Americana does not fit into my plate or like a plate of pasta. How does that fit into my plate? Right. So it's like I had to really dig deep, think about what balance looks like from working with people, right? Realizing that health is on a spectrum, that there are multiple ways to engage in healthy eating, and that if we're truly encouraging balance, then we actually want people to eat everything, but to be as mindful and intentional as they're able to 
and make the best choices possible based on what's available to them. That was like a big, hmm, <laughs> that I yeah. had to learn. Do you think that your learning and unlearning after your formal education came from like the clinical aspect of it, just like meeting individuals and is like, where, where did you start to, I guess, realize that there was an unlearn and a a learning curve? Was it in, in clinical practice? It was actually my first job out of school. I, and it's so funny, you're going to laugh. Like, so I was hired as a dietitian in a community-based organization and, um, so it was a Ryan White program. And I mean, this is how naive I was. Like I went in thinking, oh, you know, okay, HIV, AIDS, hep C, fine. But I never really thought about what that meant in terms of population. Like, like we learn about it in school. We're like, okay, cool. But the fact that the majority of the people that I saw actually had AIDS was like really eye-opening for me. And I actually had to learn that it was not like, like we're talking about access to medication. We're also talking about mental health. Like there was so much more that went into it. And I remember, so I had a soup kitchen, um, like a, a meal program, right? So we did breakfast, lunch, and dinner that I that I ended up overseeing um, because I was hired as a dietitian, but then quickly moved to like actually manage the program because um, I built the program. And then they said, why don't you just manage the program? And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but we had a meals program. And then I had um, a weekly food pantry. And the first thing that I did when I was working there was like, I pulled out all the white rice. I took all the sugar off the tables. I mean, I, I was like, it was terrible. It was so disrespectful and so rude. What I did that because that's what I learned, Right. However, if you have people who are coming off of substance dependence, sugar on the table in the morning is a fantastic alternative, right? That's not something that I ever learned, right? Like if we're talking about harm reduction, I'd much rather that you put sugar on whatever cereal it is, than you go back to using the substance that you're trying to come off of or reduce your intake. Also, I don't know what business I had removing white rice from there. Like there were plenty of vegetables. There were animal proteins that were fine. I I don't know why I did that, but it was because I was told brown rice was inherently better. So like I made these sweeping changes that I thought would benefit the entire program to then see a significant drop in actually food participation. Now, if people are coming to a meals program, they need to eat. And then here I come with like my misdietition, you know what I mean? Making these shifts that make it so that people are not eating. So not, now I'm not helping the situation. So I really had to like step back and evaluate everything that I've been taught about how we're meant to feed people and how we're meant to share evidence-based nutrition education. And I had to listen, you know, like I just had to step back and listen to the people in the program And then we did make changes, you know, so instead of having like the super hardcore brown rice, we got like (laughs) parboiled. That's a little bit like milder in flavor, you know, and I mean, that's where I also learned that things like liver, especially for marginalized and at risk populations are incredibly nutrient rich. And if we make it with onions and garlic and wonderful flavor and you serve it with rice and veggies, you've got this fantastic meal. 
Um, so like, yeah, I had to check all of the education that I'd received and see like, how's that actually applicable to real people? And it literally, the experience defied everything that the textbook had given me. Yeah. I mean, you're speaking our language. I think you're speaking a lot of our listeners language. Hopefully this is such, this is so important. And, you know, even, um, yeah, you mentioning how can we make liver even taste good if this has all this nourishment, you know, as a culturally Jewish woman, you know, liver and tongue and organ meat has been such a part of, um, (laughs) my family's history. And, there are ways, right, to make things taste delicious and nutritious and include, right? I think your point to being like, why would I take away sugar when we're trying to get people off of substances? It's like, I think a lot of wellness and a lot of what's out there, it's so one size fits all in a way that what we're talking about here is so not one size fits all. And now you have, you know, this beautiful book, right? Uh, which I can see right behind you, but, um, you know, eating from our roots and you have all of these incredible recipes that really honor, um, you know, whole food, real food recipes, but that nourish, um, not just our health, but our flavor profiles, right? Because if things don't taste good, if things aren't, um, hitting, I think sometimes like an emotionally satisfying place, it doesn't matter how healthy or nourishing or good for you it is. People are just not going to eat it. And so I do have a question though, as well, you know, maybe as we bridge into your book or even, um, because I'm sure it's connected, but, you know, for anyone listening who hears this, right. And they're like, okay, well, this is great because I don't want to get rid of white rice or, you know, I don't want to get rid of this food that, some might demonize unhealthy, but that is important to me. But are there some pillars that you found for anyone looking to be more healthful or um, kind of, I don't want to say live a healthier life, right? But again, if anyone is listening right now and they are looking for those tips of how can I make these changes, do you have any pillars that you personally follow, right? That can include, like you're saying, white rice, maybe sugar. I know sugar is so buzzy because it gets so, you know, understandably demonized when we know what sugar does to our body and um, long-term health, but people love sugar, right? So I don't know if you have any pillars or advice or suggestions for anyone listening who's like, yes, I vibe with this. And my health something needs to change in the way I'm eating as well. I don't know where that bridge is, but if there's any advice that you'd be able to offer. So um, that's a really great question. And what I usually say, and I tread very lightly here, right? Because one of the things that we know just from a overall kind of, you know, American perspective is that health and wellness is not actually at the top of the list of things that we prioritize for people. And, you know, when we're thinking about what health and wellness looks like, it is nutrition 100%, but there's also that like spiritual component. And I don't mean going to church or mosque or temple, but I mean that component of 
we are part of something larger. And that's also culturally not something that we hear talked about often in America, right? We hear people talk about religion, but we don't hear people talk about the what's the collective, what is kind of the spiritual or like all of that. And the reason I put those two together is because we are our bodies, but we are also our souls. And so when we're thinking about what does wellness and health look like and and the pillars that I like to put together for my patients, I talk about that mind-body connection. So I talk about the How do you get to know yourself, right? And how can you engage in active internal listening? Because that's a major part of the nutrition discussion. It's not so much about, did you have collard greens, white rice, black rice, red rice, chicken, fish? It's more about where do you stand as an individual in terms of your desired health goals? Do you have a diagnosis? And we know that the majority of the people living in this country have some type of diagnosis. And if you do have a diagnosis of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, you know, some kind of metabolic dysfunction in that way, what are the steps, small steps that you can take that you can replicate over and over every single day? So if it's you know, thinking about a fruit or a vegetable that you already like. And I say any fruit or vegetable, right? Because there's a whole list of fruits that you're not supposed to, that's air quote, eat, right? And there's a whole list of quote unquote superfoods that you're meant to include. And what I actually say is, what are the fruits and vegetables that you enjoy eating? What are the ones that are ideally in season, because that's when they taste best, right? Or frozen, because they've been picked at the height of the growing season. And how can you add those things in to what you're doing every single day, right? So if you know where you stand in terms of your individual health, you can think about adding in some of these very nutrient-rich options, then those are two things that you can engage in. The other thing that I say is, When are we creating time for visual relief? I live in a city. Many times when I look outside, actually my front door, there's just buildings across the street. They're beautiful buildings, but they're buildings nonetheless, right? So I actively encourage every single person I work with to find space and time for visual relief. It can be going to a city beach. It can be going to a park. It is a space where you're just not confronted with all the concrete all the time. And there's plenty of credible evidence and research that actually talks about meditative behaviors helping people reduce, you know, inflammatory kind of pathways in the body. And the reason that I put that as one of those pillars is because when we're able to engage in meditative behaviors, and it's not just sitting and meditating, right? It's whatever it is, it's relaxing for the individual and you can get some visual relief then we're better able to make mindful and intentional choices. I say all of that with the understanding that you have to have the space and the time and you've got to be gainfully employed, you know what I mean, to be able to engage in that behavior. So I fully understand that what we're talking about is people working within a system or living within a system that actually prioritizes human health. So 
I think it's not so easy to separate them, right? But my pillars really are what can you add, especially things that are nutrient rich. How can you give yourself time for rest and time off, right? And that recovery. And then the fourth pillar that I have is how do you give yourself some grace? Because life will absolutely life. It's going to do what it's going to do, right? And some of it we can modify and some of it we cannot. But if we're constantly walking around with guilt and burden on our shoulders about what we should have, could have done, it actually is not going to help us engage in those sustainable behaviors. Um, and those are things that are low cost in terms of finances, high cost in terms of intentionality, um, but incredibly important because once we begin to center ourselves and prioritize all aspects of wellness, then we get paid back in the most incredible returns. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that sort of, I'm going to call it a holistic approach in the sense of we're looking at the whole and not the, um, just like the input of food, because, you know, even being in the nutrition space, Erica and I do integrative nutrition coaching. It's interesting hearing you talk, even as a dietitian who deals with like the medical component of it as well. It's like, oftentimes conversations with clients so quickly don't become about food because there's so many other components to our life and whether or not um, we're supporting or we're able to support or the systems we have to live within, you know, lend the ability <laughs> to support the other things that go into um, creating not just a healthy life, but even how food will work for us in our own bodies. And so I think looking at, you know, whether you can get some meditative time in the park or whatever might work for you and, and what that does even to our, um, our nervous system and how that interacts with, uh, the food we may choose to, you know, eat or, um, what we have access to, all of that. It, it's not like I'm compartmentalized. You know, we're not compartmentalized in in the way that I think sometimes our medical system in the Western world, at least, compartmentalizes the body. Is that we're not a compartmentalized being, and and so the way our we might be, um, you know, in our sympathetic nervous system response more more of the time than we'd like to be is going to affect the way that we digest the food even that we have. So I think recognizing all those other components are really crucial in this conversation. And sometimes, um, sometimes we don't include them in the conversation. So thank you for sharing. I think all of those, like the wider holistic view about that. We want to take a quick break from this episode to talk about today's sponsor, Ned. If you have listened to this podcast, then you know I struggle with anxiety. When I first learned about CBD being a natural and powerful solution to anxiety, sleep disorders, muscle pain, headaches, and so much more, I became very passionate about finding the best source to put in my body. Enter Ned. Ned's full spectrum hemp oil is USDA certified organic, extracted from USDA certified organic hemp plants, grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Paonia, Colorado. And I use the products daily to support my anxiety, and it has been so helpful in everyday life. These products are science backed 
nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Right now, we are both really enjoying Ned's brand new product, which has been in development for over a year, the De-Stress Blend. This one-to-one formula of CBD and CBG is made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp. And check out these ingredients. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. And ashwagandha is an amazing amazing Ayurvedic adaptogen that enhances your body's resilience to stress. And the delicious taste of this blend is thanks to the botanical infusion of cardamom and cinnamon. Cinnamon is a powerful prebiotic that supports your gut health, a key player in your mental health. And cardamom combats stress by helping reduce your blood pressure and cortisol levels. Ned's quality also really speaks for itself. Ned's products have over 1,500 five-star reviews, and they work with incredible partners within the medical field like Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and Dr. Will Cole, who has been a two-time guest on Courageous Wellness. If you'd like to give Ned a try, Courageous Wellness listeners get 15% off Ned products with code CWPODCAST. Visit helloned.com slash CWPODCAST to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash CWPODCAST to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. A direct link can also be found in our show notes. We are so excited to offer our listeners a new discount to one of the best probiotic supplements on the market, Seed. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, then you know that Allie and I are both very serious when it comes to the importance of gut health and building a thriving microbiome. I personally have been using seed for close to a year now and have noticed a big difference in my digestion and bloating. I am devoted to taking seed every single morning before food, and I'm really excited to share their daily symbiotic with our audience. The formulation of the daily symbiotic combines a probiotic and prebiotic is vegan and gluten-free and includes 24 clinically studied naturally occurring strains, not found in yogurt or fermented foods and beverages, and lives up to the highest standards for human and planetary health. Yes. And in addition to being a really reliable probiotic and prebiotic supplement, Seed is committed to creating science-based education for all those that partner with them through accountable advertising at Seed University. This is where we are all committed to not spreading misinformation about health on the internet. Pretty important, right? Also, I personally love their commitment to sustainability with a refill system and all recyclable or biodegradable packaging materials. Erica and I only advertise products that we use and feel are of benefit to us and by extension could be of value to our community as well. If you would like to order Seed Daily Symbiotics to incorporate into your own gut health routine, go to seed.com and use the code COURAGEOUS15 at checkout for 15% off or click on the link in our show notes. And then to go into food a little bit more and and your cookbook, um, so as Erica said, it's Eating From Our Roots is the name of it. And 
I'd love to sh- for you to share a little bit about how you put these recipes together. I know you talk a little bit about it in the beginning of the book, but um, you explore all different types of cuisines that are different of different cultures. Um, and I guess my, I'd love to start with how, where did you get the thought for creating this? Like what was the inspiration to create this? And then how did you, um, go about making it and what, what did that process look like for you? Um, I love that question. Um, and, you know, as a dietitian, it's so funny. I think once someone referred to me as um, an integrative dietitian, they said that I was a functional dietitian. And it's so interesting because I actually have never given myself either of those labels, even though I absolutely am within both of those worlds. Um, just as you said, I know that when we're talking about food and nourishment, we have to expand the conversation right? And I know it from a working, like my clinical experience with patients. And I know it also from my community work with patients. And I feel like what we see, just as you said at the beginning, right? January is this month where everybody is getting bombarded with this diet information. And so people jump into these highly restrictive patterns of eating with the hopes of some type of quote unquote miracle outcome only to realize that a, they can't do that for the rest of their life. B, there's no satisfaction in like this in extreme restriction. And then there's just tons of guilt because it's like, I didn't do what I was supposed to do because the diet told me to do this. Right. And when, um, you know, when I was approached, uh, and said, like, listen, you've got a blank slate, which is like a huge gift, right? Like, I recognize that that is like one of the biggest gifts ever. I said, well, I come from a multicultural family. I am a person who truly relishes learning about other cultures. And we were in the shutdown. And I was like, well, I can't go all over the world. I was like, but I can travel with my taste buds everywhere. And I was like, and maybe I can take people with me and we can learn a little bit along the way. And I was like, I know diets don't work. (laughs) I also don't believe in, you know, assigning these prescriptive diets. Like, listen, I've got patients who have GI conditions and we do like there's prescriptive nutrition, but I don't believe in these blanket, as you both said, one size fits all. And so really I took this as an opportunity to expand the conversation around nutrition and health and culture and to take people on a flavor trip that is wonderfully healthy. There are plenty of different animal proteins and vegetables, both starchy and non-starchy. We're super intentional about our use of additives, like so added sugars, the added salts, and I lean really into the heart healthy fats, um, but we're really intentional about all of that. And I thought that it was important because just as we spoke about, right, we want food to be tasty and we actually want to invite people to the table. And if we want people to engage in these nourishing patterns of eating 
in a sustainable fashion, the food's got to taste good. So I partnered um, with some very incredible chefs um, and every single recipe, except for three, were tested in my home kitchen. The other three were tested by a chef who lives fairly close to me and I went to their kitchen. Um, And I have to tell you, that was actually really fun to be in someone else's kitchen after testing every single recipe in my kitchen with a chef by my side. Um, And it was an incredible process. Uh, Because we were in the shutdown portion of the pandemic still, um, it was really just Chef Sylvia Barbon and myself in my home kitchen. And I joke, I have five burners. I should have eight. Um, I have one large stove and a smaller speed oven. I should definitely have six ovens, uh, you know, so it was pretty incredible. Um, and it was summertime a couple of years ago that, you know, we tested all of these recipes. Um, some of them I modified, I mean, I modified all of them as they came in to, you know, um, just because I'm a dietitian. (laughs) Um, but I also learned so much from every single chef that, you know, we partnered with and the chefs are really diverse. They're all people of color or women. Um, and that was intentional on my part, right? I feel like it's interesting, you know, um, you both are in wellness and I'm in wellness with you. Yet the voices that we hear tend to be these white men, right? And so I wanted the voices that were in the book to be more representative of the majority of the globe. Um, And so it was intentional to really seek out people who were experts. Um, One of the chefs that contributed is the first Black man to get a Michelin star um, like incredible, you know? Um, and so it was, I mean, it, the process was there were tears of joy. Like I can read a recipe and cry. Cause I'm like, this is so delicious. Um, and I love the story behind it. Um, and it was really just my love of food and nutrition and my love of exploring the world. Mm. I love it. I'm so excited to make some of these recipes. I can't wait. Everything looks ridiculously delicious. And um, I have a couple questions, but first I'm going to ask, do you have a favorite recipe? I'm sure that's asking like a favorite child, but is there a a personal favorite that you have? I actually asked a, um, a colleague of mine who's a chef. I was like, what's your favorite kitchen utensil? And she said to me, she was like, how can I choose? She's like, I would never ask you to choose which child of yours is your favorite. I laughed so hard, Erica. So like, (laughs) do I have a favorite recipe? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I love them all. Recently, I made three of them again um, from time to time. Like I'll go into the book and I'll make a recipe. And then I fell in love with all three of them all over again. It Mm. was like, oh my God, these are incredible. And there were people there and we were tasting them and we're like, this is amazing. You know, when we did the shoot for the cookbook, like I fell in love with all, you know, 50 recipes. (laughs) I don't know. You know, um, what I can tell you is that lobster is my favorite Mm. food. 
And I was born in the northern part of the U.S. in Massachusetts. And so I am I'm, I'm a huge like shellfish lover. Mm. Um, and so there is a recipe that has a lobster tail. Um, and I love that recipe. But I also love the other ones, too. Yum. Yum, so yum, yum. <laughs> um, oh, go I- ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say something like while you're talking about just like the different cultural influences that like and chefs that informed these recipes too. One thing that I found or I'm continuing to find interesting, the deeper my nutrition education goes, you know, like in my house, we're foodies too. My husband's a really great chef and not professionally he's in the music business, but he loves, like, it's a total relaxation for him to cook even after working all day. And he loves to experiment with things and he's, he's become quite good. And we love to eat. <laughs> Just put it that way. And I'm originally from New Jersey and I'm Italian. So I, I, I love to eat. But, um, one thing I've realized is I'm starting to be able to observe the intelligence in some of the culinary choices from a nutrition standpoint, um, like historically in different cultural, many different cultures, foods and cuisines and how there's like a lot of um, intentionality as far as like what, how it will function nutritionally Mm. in our bodies. And I think that's so fascinating. Like I was realizing that recently, even I lived in Japan for a while And I didn't have this conscientiousness about it while I lived in Japan, but now being more in the nutrition world, I'm like, oh, it makes sense that we, you know, start a meal with edamame, um, having the higher fiber before you go into, you know, maybe more of the starch with the rice, you know, doing that first and what's going to happen to my blood sugar. And it's all so intentional, but it's a part of the cuisine. There's such like sort of intelligence from a culinary perspective in so many different cultures, cuisines. And I, I don't know, as you were talking, that was just something that I realized like is, is really cool. Yeah. I agree with you. Like, I mean, I say like, I even say this in my book, I don't want to give too many spoilers. However, like every time I've traveled anywhere else and I've sat in anybody's like grandparents home and they've made something there's always been something that came from a garden. Mm -hmm. There's always been something that's like, well, we've done it this way for a very long time. And food actually takes time to prepare. You know, it's, I mean, I love a quick meal, don't get me wrong, but food does take time. And also if we're working with ingredients in their whole and minimally processed form, we've got to process them ourselves, break them down, and it takes time. Yeah, it's so... Allie, that was kind of like a jumping off point was my next question, which is because you said like, you're like, well, I'm a dietitian, So of course I modified, like had to do it. Um, and that kind of brings me to my, my question, which is, um, right. You mentioned, I think we mentioned pasta earlier as something people love, right. That could be, even if it's not part of their culture, maybe just, I feel like pasta is such a favorite food of so many of us. And in months like January or when people want to tighten up, it's like, well, got to get rid of that pasta. But is there a way, right? So you modified some dishes to punch it up as the dietitian. For anyone listening who might love rice or love pasta, can you offer any of those dietitian modifications to kind of punch up their own meals right at home that they may be loving? Absolutely. 
Um, so, you know, I, I feel like I always say to people, um, like I love vegetables. I mean, I, I really do love vegetables. Uh, I, before breakfast salad was like a thing and like in every magazine, I was like, oh, of course, you know, like, <laughs> like, what? of course. Um, there's a joke in my family that like you make a salad for the table and then you make a salad for Maya. Um, <laughs> I love that. Right. So I do encourage people to really fall in love with vegetables and get to know vegetables that are in season um, and play with their flavor. Right. So we spend a lot of time marinating our animal proteins but we don't ever think about like playing with the flavor and the texture of vegetables. I was at this awesome uh, like in-service for cooking and there was a salad that was like a slaw. It was jicama and a little bit of pear and mango, some red chili, a little olive. Uh, no, I don't think there was olive oil. There was something else I can't remember exactly, but it was this sweet tart crunch and then lime. And I feel like if we get that excited about our produce, then we're more likely to eat it. And so when people are looking for ways to excite what their plate is offering for them, I say, look to your vegetables and don't be afraid of the fruit and vegetable mix, right? Um, like bell pepper, pear, mango, cucumber with you know, lime and hot pepper. Oh my goodness. That is incredibly exciting. And the other thing that I say to people is actually, so they oftentimes think like, yeah, I'm going to pull out the rice and I'm going to pull out the pasta as a way to actually quote unquote, get healthy. And that's really not productive. And I'll say why. For all of us, Carbohydrates, and to be clear, when we're talking about carbohydrates, your listeners know this already from listening to you guys, include your grains, your beans, your nuts, your seeds, your starchy and your non-starchy vegetables, as well as your dairy products. Once we get into this idea that we have to omit these things from our pattern of eating, every time you pull something out, the question is, well, what are you replacing it with? Right. And so if we start pulling out rice and we start pulling out pasta, culturally, people in America tend to increase the animal protein intake. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with animal proteins. But what I am saying is that our patterns of eating tend to rotate around animal proteins with those vegetables and grains and starches as, you know, they just come, you know, they come in as the side. And the animal protein is huge, right? We're like, we're not talking about three ounces. We're, there are places where it's like, you know, eight and 12 ounces. And so once you start to really cut all of those things out and then you start increasing the animal proteins, just like Ali said, we're missing the fiber, right? And when we talk about reducing systemic inflammation, we know that plants are at the forefront of that discussion. We also know that the majority of people in this country actually don't even have a fruit or vegetable each day. And so I would much rather that someone sits down and has rice and they add a little coconut milk to it, you know, and a sprinkle of salt and a squeeze of lime, um, or that they have a bowl of pasta with some fresh tomatoes and garlic, a little bit of olive oil and basil, and maybe a chili flake, 
um, then they sit down to a huge piece of meat with nothing. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, it's, it's a good way to just put it all into perspective where it's not always about making these sweeping eliminations, obviously with the caveat that if you're having certain sort of very specific kind of medical conditions or whatever that might be, but on in the general, if you're not dealing with something specific, like making extreme, um, uh, taking extreme restrictions. Um, there, there's a way I think like what you speak to is, it's like, what, what is the alternative? So just to have perspective on it all. And I know sometimes like that can be done in so many ways. I know people who historically, I mean, I was one of these people for a while years ago where I removed all the animal protein from my diet. But what was I eating instead? Like really highly processed soy, not necessarily vegetables in, you know, so it was like really doing certain things, um, and trying to be conscious and aware of, well, could I just maybe add some things to the refined carbohydrate? If I, if I want to enjoy that, could I add some things that might affect, um, overall what I'm consuming and maybe even adding more fiber in on my plate along with that rather than just the complete omittance. Um, yeah. And it, I think looking at it with a big picture in the way that you're saying is really helpful um, because as we know, and I think this conversation really highlights this too, um, taking a lot of things into consideration when we're talking about our health journeys. And um, and oftentimes it's what is going to feel sustainable over time, not what I can do uh, this month <laughs> if we're talking about January right. in particular. Right. right. I mean, the other thing that I have to say is like, it, this has to be brought into the conversation. There's absolutely nothing wrong with white rice and there's nothing right. wrong with pasta. Like those foods are completely acceptable and absolutely fit within a healthy, balanced pattern of eating. Yeah. So I think that that's important for people to understand. Also, I want to, just as you say, as you said, you pointed out, like, I want to remind people that we're talking about food over time, right? What you do for breakfast is what you did for breakfast. What you do for lunch is what you've done for lunch. And by the time you get to dinner, that's yet another opportunity to have an interaction with food. We actually want people to nourish themselves consistently throughout the day. And I prefer that the center of people's plates are based in whole and minimally processed nutrient-dense foods, right? And so I say that with the caveat of I prefer because I'm, I work with people who have diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. And I also know that there are ways for people to have packaged goods that also fit within a mm-hmm. healthy, balanced pattern of eating, because we're talking about the long term. Someone the other day said, oh, but chips are so bad. And I said, but we're not eating chips for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right. Also, if you sit down, and you have a package of single serve lays that is potato, oil, and salt. And it's a single serve packet of lays, right? It's so I like to remind, and so when we're saying everything fits, that also means just as you said, Allie, right? You're like, oh, you know, you were 
removed all the animal proteins and then you switched your pattern of eating, but it's like, what we're really seeing is variety. How do you increase the variety in your pattern of eating? The majority of the time you're getting all of these nutrient rich plants on your plate, animal proteins, if you consume them are showing up as the accompaniment, right? And you're engaged in some type of movement that fits your individual ability, right? And there's some rest time. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I think that's a perfect on that note. I think we should, um, I mean, we could talk to you and pick your brain for hours, but we should probably uh, move on to our three wrap up questions that we ask all of our guests. So the first one is, um, what does your daily self care look like, at least right now in your life? And do you have any non-negotiables for yourself? Yeah. So sleep is a major non-negotiable for me. Um, like if I don't sleep and I stay up too late, then I'm not a happy person. I really love sleep. Um, and I generally sleep very well. So that's a non-negotiable. Um, you'll never see me burning the midnight oil. Um, maybe, well, having fun with friends, uh, (laughs) from time to time. Um, self-care for me these days looks like, um, making time for intentional movement, um, on multiple days per week. So more days than not, I prefer to be moving, doing something. Running has always been my movement of choice. Uh, I, I swear every year, every January, I'm like, I'm going to do something other than run. Never. It's just so efficient and wonderful. Um, and I feel great when I do it. Uh, and then the other non-negotiable for me is very hot baths. I'm sure all my dermatologist friends are like, I hope you're moisturizing. Uh, But I love a really great aromatherapy bath. And I have a tub that is dangerously deep. um, And I get it a a couple times per week. um, And just I soak with like essential um, uh, Epsom salts or essential oils from Dr. Hauschka or Knipe. And I just get in there and I'm like, chill out. So th- those are my uh, self-care routines um, and my non-negotiables. Yeah. I love a dangerously hot bath too. That's my, I could, I could be in it twice a day. Like I, I love it so much. Um, So I'm right there with you. Uh, the next question we always ask is what does being courageous mean to you? Okay. So I'm going to answer that question, but Erica, I have to tell you when things are rough, Twice a day, I am in the tub. I can't even bring it and I'm back there in the evening again. Yeah, it's so, like yeah. the way to start the day. Like I'll start my day in the tub. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's everything better. I highly recommend it. Like I, that's where I say to people. I even think they're like blow up tubs. I'm like, get one <laughs> in your bedroom. Like get a hose. Do whatever you have to do. I know. <laughs> um. So for me, um, what does it mean to be courageous? Um. So. Right now in my life, what it means to be courageous is for me to really engage in active listening um, and a regular commitment to amplify the voices of communities that are not heard. That's great. Thank you so much. And the final question is, in addition to your own book, 
do you have a book recommendation for our audience on, it can truly be on anything and just something that's meant something to you along your, your journey? Totally. So the first book that jumps into my mind is uh, it's actually a set of stories that was edited by Alice Wong, and it's called Disability Visibility. And I love the book so much because it's just stories of people with varying disabilities, some, you know, that you can see outwardly and some not. And I think that as a clinician, um, being reminded that people have different abilities and disabilities has been really important in my practice. Thank you. And if anyone wants to follow you, find you, um, buy your book, where can they do that? So Eating From Our Roots can be purchased everywhere that books are sold. So go to your favorite retailer and you can order your copy or gift uh, of Eating From Our Roots. And if you'd like to follow me on social, I am across social at Maya Feller RD. Thank you again, Maya. It was a great conversation and we're really happy um, to have had you here today. Ali, Erin, Erica, thank you so much for having me to both of you. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure being here. And Erica, I feel like we should like start a revolution and like, in, you know, give away bathtubs to everybody. Oh, I know. I know. hundred <laughs> percent. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Courageous Wellness. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week. Subscribe, rate, and write us a nice review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Courageous Wellness or get in touch via our website, www.courageouswellness.net, where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services, virtual group events, newsletter, and more. Until next week, I'm Allie. And I'm Erica, and we're Courageous Wellness.